Hi, I'm Bob Switzer, and this is the Epic Narrative. Yeah, so leadership. There's lots of ways to illustrate bad leadership. I, I think I'm pretty sure that's where we left off last time. And and again, you know, Saul, I don't think I don't think Saul was under the influence of a of a evil spirit. I don't think he was he was oppressed by a demon. I think Saul was just going down the logical, reasonable road of somebody who is in leadership who's not confident in who they really are. And and he got himself he got himself into into a deep, pretty deep hole and this happens to a lot of people. I mean, there's there's leadership, you know, uh, sometimes they're just very concerned about their legacy, right? They want their legacy to be good. They want their their the future generations to look back and say, there was a great leader. <laughs> and and sometimes, you know, it, it doesn't they don't they don't fall this far. They don't come into a place where they are where they're, you know, freaking out and and causing irreputable damage to tens of thousands of lives, but they can create a pretty negative place to live and work because everything they're doing is about themselves. Everything that they, everything that they present. And this happens, it doesn't, it can happen in the boardroom. It can happen in the, in the church council. It can happen in a ministry and and you hear it and you see it and it 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 creates a pretty negative environment to work in and and Saul had done that so he's in this situation where he's he's whining he's complaining he's accusing he's he's um feeling sorry for himself he's wanting pity he he's got all this going on and and Doag he, you know, comes up with this information, this this gossip that he had, which, of course, is another, uh, I mean, I covered it last week, but it's another form of bad leadership where information becomes a commodity. So the king finds out that the priest, Ahimelech, Ahimelech um, had helped David out when David was running. So he sends for the priest and all of his men, of his family, who were who were who were the priests at Nob. So so Nob was a, was a basically a village of priests that took care of the temple, and and uh, they they were all required now to come to the palace. So I'm sure that they knew they were in trouble. If you remember a couple a couple of sessions ago, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about how when David showed up to to speak to Ahimelech, remember he answered the door or tent or wherever he he showed up trembling like he knew he knew that this was trouble he knew that this could be bad he knew he knew that David was on the run he knew that Saul was after him he may not have known the details but he knew that this was not a good sign that David had showed up in the middle of the night with no no supplies claiming to be on a on a journey when he showed up he's he's trembling and David, David, you know, concocts a story, and uh, Elimelech helps him and sends him on his way, and and Doag absorb, uh, observes the whole thing. So, so when he gets this message that the king would like you and all of your men to report to the palace, I'm guessing it was probably delivered by a military personnel, maybe even a group of them, just just to make it really clear that that not showing up was not an option. So everyone showed up. All his men, all the men of the family. Now it's it's about eight, I believe it's 85 people that showed up. 85 men. Um I think I'm looking for my number. I think I wrote it down somewhere on my notes. Anyways, um, they all show up. I, I believe it's 85. I'm really surprised I didn't write that down because it's stuck in my head so clearly as though I've read it recently. But there we go. 
I don't, I don't, I don't know what I don't know where I got that number. So since he Saul sends for all the priests, they all show up, and he accuses them all. Saul says, "Listen now, son of Ahitub. In other words, I'm not going to call you by your name." And he, and and Ahimelech answers. He goes, "Yes." Saul says, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of the Lord so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? So again, here we have a leader who has rehearsed the the way he's going to perceive life is through the lie that everyone's out to get him. No one appreciates what he does for them. No one um, gives him credit for all the authority and power that he ha- that they have. And I have no doubt that, as far as Saul is concerned, at this point in his in his in the lies that he believes, he he believes that the priests have their job because of him. And if he didn't if he didn't allow them to do their job, they wouldn't have a job. So. So they should be there in humility. They should be there in in um, subjugation to Saul. They should all be just just begging for their lives, so to speak, as they walk in. That should be their attitude. And so Saul reminds them, why you know why have you conspired against me? Why why are you part of this part of the nation? This nationwide conspiracy, all of my family conspired against me because they wouldn't tell me what was going on. My son has has conspired against me because he has a best friend who is my enemy. Everybody is against me, including you. Why have you joined the conspiracy? Again, David uh, Saul is completely ignoring the history of David, completely ignoring the facts of the story, completely ignoring all the times that he he had with David, all the good times he had with David, the fact that David was was uh, you know technically part of the family, a son-in-law of the king by the king's choice. I mean, all of that is is being ignored, which is not unusual when when a leader is so concerned about their legacy. When a leader is concerned about their legacy, they're constantly framing and reframing the circumstances to fit the narrative that they want the world to know. And I've I've seen that again. And, and for me, most of my life has been spent in the ministry. So I've seen this in the church, where where even that even that uh, that vocabulary is used in in the conference rooms. Well, we need to frame this correctly. We need to we need to. Um, Word this in such a way so that the people understand how we want them to see it. In other words, we don't need the details. We don't need to re, you know, remind them of certain things. We need to frame it. We need to cut off information. That's what a frame does, right? If you're going to frame a picture, it cuts off the edges. It's it, Even if it's just a little bit, very few frames expose the, the whole picture. And that's what a frame here is doing. He's framing it. Everybody's conspiring against me, including you. You gave him bread. You gave him a sword. So you gave him food. You gave him weapons. And you gave him godly advice. Now this was this was the evidence that Saul was using within his framework to prove to Elimelech that that the evidence, you know, that, that Saul's accusations, sorry, that the accusations were irrefutable. I'm guessing that Saul had practiced these. He clearly had them rehearsed when he spoke to the men of Benjamin, but now it's even more succinct and passionate and matter of fact. These are no longer conjectures. These are facts as far as Saul is concerned. So Halimelech answers the king. Now I, I, I try to imagine like where is this taking place? I, I kind of, I kind of think it's in the throne room just because Saul is, is a power play, right? He's he wants, he wants to be seen as as irrefutable. 
He wants to be seen as the ultimate authority, the one who who has the information right, that the that the quote framework of this circumstance is the only the only way to see it is my way to see it. So I part of, you know that's that's where I I think this is taking place. But there's other people that are there. There's I have no doubt that there's at least a number of commanders people that were part of the original first conversation that that we talked about last week where Saul was speaking to the quote the men of Benjamin right all of all of his relatives that he had promoted even though they didn't have qualifications I think that there there are at least some of them there I have no doubt that the elite guard is there we know that uh you know later on we see that a doag is there so there's there's a there's a and Doag wasn't part of the elite guard. He oversaw the the king's um, livestock. So he oversaw the king's wealth and was part of the part of the guidance or council. So I'm guessing maybe the council was there as well. Like this is a it's it's kind of like if uh, well it's it's the king basically calling in an entire branch of the government even though technically the priests were outside the government the the religious you know world was outside of of his influence but he calls them all in so i think that even though elimelech was nervous and he and he knew that there could be trouble between he knew that there was trouble between saul and david and he probably knew that by helping david things could be interpreted in a negative in a negative way I think that he he also might have been thinking there's really not a lot that Saul can do because Saul doesn't really oversee us. We we work for God. So these 80 or 85 guys are are standing there. This so part of me thinks this is a pretty big group of people. I don't know how big this throne room is. If you got 85 guys plus an elite guard plus some of the council, maybe maybe a few commanders there, then my mind like flips it and moves it out, like maybe outside into a courtroom, or a courtroom. Sorry, courtyard, <laughs> courtroom. And maybe they're outside at this point. Maybe there's an outside throne room in the you know outside throne courtyard, court throne throne yard, throne yard. Let's make up a word, Bob. Anyways, may uh, that's. That's where I end up in this story. I think I think they're outside, and and I'm guessing there's royal tents, and maybe the throne is you know there's a the portable throne is out there. Uh, I just I don't picture this happening without Saul sitting on the throne, and so you you can picture the for me outside I, I land outside on this you know the winds blowing gently the 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 canopies over the top of the king so he's in the shade. The um, the servants, you know, are pouring him liquid refreshment. There's probably some, you know, some some food available for him in his court, not for the priest and the and all of all of his men. There's there's just there's just this whole I think atmosphere. Again, I think that framing the circumstances were really important to Saul. I think I think he wanted to look good. He wanted to look as one who had authority. He wanted to look like something that he didn't believe he really was deep inside. He wanted to keep the facade. Arrogant people love the facade. They love because it hides them. They don't they don't I don't think they necessarily love it because of the way it looks. I think they love it because it hides the what they believe about themselves. And that's what makes them hypocritical. That's what makes them over time just seem un, you know, non-authentic. They don't seem real. You walk through their house, or you walk, you know, you you spend time with them at lunch, or you're in the boardroom with them, or you're in the, in you know, on the stage in ministry with them, and something about them doesn't seem authentic. It's because they're framing themselves the way that they want to be perceived. So this whole this whole scene. I believe has been set up because again, this doesn't happen instantaneously. It's a three mile journey to Nob. 
They've got to collect all of the priests. They've got to, some of them aren't on duty. Some of them are with their families. Some of them are out in the fields cultivating crops and taking care of livestock. They've got to put all of that together. They all got to figure out a way. I'm guessing most of them walked. Uh, that's another three mile back. Uh, all of this probably took a couple days to set up when Saul said, I want, I want, I want Elimelech here and I want all the priests here. And then he probably put his, his attendants, and there was probably, in essence, a PR guy and a, a special events person, and their job was to make it look good. So Saul could stand there and make his accusations or sit there and lean against his, you know, the arm of armrest of his of his throne and make his accusations and look like this is irrefutable. There's no way you can come back at me at this. Look at my authority. Look at my influence. Look at the look at the 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 guards. What do I want to say? The power. There you go. Look at the power I have. What I say is true. You have conspired against me. You gave food, weapons, and advice to David, who currently is waiting to kill me. That's 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 what it says when he lies and wait for me. David could be around the corner with you know with with his sling right now, looking to take me out. That's how paranoid. Saul is, and paranoia is not unusual for people who are trying to frame their world. Because anytime an arrogant person, anytime an arrogant leader sees a dent in their framework, they are afraid that somebody's going to know the truth. Somebody's going to find out that I have a history. Somebody's going to find out that I've made mistakes before. Somebody's going to find out I'm not as good of a leader as I keep making them you know, think I am, or that I think that I'm making them think I am based on the way that I frame myself. There's, there's just layers of, of deception and self-deception and layers of lies that Saul has told himself and told others and told others about himself. And he's got to keep track of it all. It is a terrible weight to live under. Hypocrisy is it's, it's, it's honestly, I don't, I don't look at Saul. I don't get angry at him. I feel horrible for him. He can't, He's he's layering the stuff on top of himself to to the point where he can't get out, or so he thinks. Now God's love can break through that; it can break all the chains, right? That song was popular. It's an old song too, uh, but but that's that's what Saul needs. He needs a breakthrough into the love of God. He needs to, in essence, repent and see the truth. And walk in the light, but but it's tough when you're when you're going down the circle. And I, you know, this this story I think is a turning point because because well, Saul continues to make choices that separate him from the that's he makes choices to separate from the love of God. God doesn't make those choices. God doesn't separate himself from Saul because God can't, and he won't. He's committed to love. He's committed to freedom. And part of that freedom is you can choose to ignore me. You can choose to not be influenced by my love. But Elimelech is walking with God and he answers the king. And he answers the king with a, with a, with a series of questions. And, and as I said before, it's really important when you communicate that you don't, you, that you don't present things in an, in an accusation, you present things in such a way that invites conversation and you invite conversation through question, not through information. You invite conversation through, through formulating ways to get to know the person, get to know the perspective or get to understand why they're doing what they're doing. Many people are so good at releasing information, but you really they really have no idea who they're talking to because they've never really asked good questions. In their heart of hearts, and and, and again, I don't think that they're 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 evil people by any means, but in their heart of hearts, they think information is so important. What I have, what I know is so important. And so that's all they do is release information. They look for opportunity to release information. And and it's fun to watch sometimes. And I, I've been in rooms and situations where I've where I've watched 
two people who love to share information talking to each other. And I keep thinking, this is fascinating because I (laughs) watch it go on and one person goes on a monologue and the other person's nodding and nodding. And when that, you know, when the monologue's done, they just start their own monologue. It has nothing to do with the first monologue. It has to do with them and the information they want to release. And the information just is like being, for lack of a better term, I would say vomited all over each other. (laughs) When they both leave, they probably are both thinking, I had such a nice conversation with that person. I was able to tell them all these things that I know. And I'm sure that they were fascinated by what I had to say because I know a lot of things. Well, Saul's that type of person. Well, Limelech starts out with questions. Who of all your servants is as loyal as David? It, this is, this is a, help me understand what's going on here, uh, Saul. Help me, under, uh, help, help me understand what's going on. Who's, who's your most loyal servant? Who's, who is, of, of all people, like in comparison to David, what, just help me understand your perception of David. Right? He's, uh, he's your son-in-law, right? He's, uh, mm, he's captain of your bodyguard, uh, which technically is standing right here near us. He's, he oversees all these guys, right? I mean, I know you're the ultimate general of all things, commander-in-chief, but David uh, David oversees these guys, right? I mean, I, correct me if I'm wrong. And as far as I know, he holds uh, a lot of respect from everyone in your household. Your Your family loves and respects David. Now, now, We'll break this down, right? So when he says, who's who's a greater servant than David? He's also implying these people haven't haven't done what David's like the people I'm looking at around here, they they are less servants than David. David has gone to battle for this country under your authority. He's gone to battle and won battles. Dozens of times. He's he's literally undefeated on the field. And he lays his life down on the field every time. He, he battles with his men. He inspires the men. They love David. This is all implied in the question. This information is general information that everybody knows. So when he says, who's who's a greater, who's more loyal than David? Who lays their life on the line more than David? Who puts himself out there? on behalf of the of the country and in your name who does that more than david and honestly any commander that's standing there knows that they don't qualify when it comes to this when it comes to this question because because they were given positions of authority of commander of of various numbers in the armed forces they were given those positions by Saul they were unqualified for those positions. They were given them, you know, they were given because of their family connection and their quote loyalty to Saul. But they've never been on the battlefield. And if they have, they're they're a mile away waiting for information about how the battle's going. They are not in the middle of the of the battle. They do not lay their lives on the line for the for the nation or for the king. They don't serve to the level that David is known to serve. Listen, David, David went on the battlefield. For like for years, even after he's king, David is on the battlefield, not standing in the background. He is on the battlefield. It's we'll, we'll get into this later, and I'm guessing it'll be weeks later because it is way out there. I think it's in Second Samuel. Have I, I don't even it's it's way out there. But David was literally about to be killed on the battlefield. He had been <laughs> he had been. <laughs> Fighting in the battle, uh, uh, one of the Philistines was on his tail. He trapped him in a little um, um, dead end, so to speak, in the in the crevice of a of a rock, and he's about to shove a spear through him. And David is saved by one of his one of his thirty mighty men. And it was after that battle that David's asked to please stop coming to the battle. You need you need to stay home. 
because we can't risk losing you. You're not as young as you used to be. You're not as fast as you used to be. And if if I hadn't been here, like you would have died. And we can't afford that. You're too good of a king. So, but but that's in comparison to where he is now, which is he's in the battle with the men. And he's showing them how to fight. And he's a fierce warrior, a passionate warrior. And he's an amazing servant. And and that's implied. All that information is in the context of this question. Who of all your servants, and theoretically you're surrounded by your servants right now, all those who are loyal to the crown, all those who would serve you at, at, at a drop of a hat, who's more loyal than David? Crickets, right? Just silence. Saul knows the answer to this. He can't he can't answer this question. Saul's dumbfounded that Elimelech's asking him because he set up this whole confrontation. He set up this whole confrontation to to intimidate any backtalk from Elimelech. He wanted just servitude. He wanted groveling. He wanted abject humility. He wanted to humiliate the priest and all of his men. I don't think the end of this story was the goal at the beginning of this story. I think Elimelech asks a question and he asks a series of them because I think in God's goodness, which is never separated from his people, in his goodness, he's inviting Saul to repentance once again. Remember, Jonathan did this with Saul uh, probably a, a, a couple years back, when the first time that, that Saul put out a death warrant on David. He puts out, he, he calls him to repentance, and Saul responds. So Elimelech's doing the same thing. He's having a uh, he has a, a, a an opportunity to reposition Saul's perception on what's going on. His perspective needs to be lifted, repented. He needs to be called up to the penthouse so that he can see the choice that he's made, the decision he made is not the best one he could have made. He needs to get a big picture on this. So he says. Help me understand, Saul, who's more loyal than David? Isn't he family? He says, the king's son-in-law. He reminds him, okay, fine. You don't want to, you don't want to talk about the, how, how he lays his life down for, for the country, how he lays his life down for, for, uh, for you, how he, how he is willing to die to defend God's people your people, and you from the enemies of of this nation. You don't want to talk about that? Let's talk about the fact that he's family. You invited him into the family, Saul. That's what he's asking. Your son-in-law, right? Your son-in-law. You did that. Why would you do that, Saul? You did it for this reason. You did it because you loved him. You loved David. You wanted him to be part of your family. Now, yes, you promised him the first daughter, and then you thought he was questioning your kingship. You were humiliated by his answer because he was so humble. So you gave your first daughter away to somebody else, but you ultimately made him part of your family. You didn't have to do that. You didn't have to do that. You chose to do that because you loved David. All right, fine. You don't want to talk about the fact that he's loyal. You don't want to talk about the fact that he's family. Well, he's captain of your bodyguard. What does that mean? He says, basically saying, Saul, help me understand, someone who you trust so deeply, What? why are we out to kill him? Just walk me through the process. When did David lose your trust? When did he do something that was untrustworthy, that was deceptive, that was evil, that was wrong? All of this is implied in the questions. It's not, I, I know it looks like he was he was confrontational, that he just got all up in Saul's face. But these questions, 
are outlines to a conversation that took place between Saul and, and Ahimelech. And in that, in that conversation, in that confrontation, I don't think Saul responded. I think as Elimelech presented these questions, and again, they weren't in short form. They weren't in this bullet point, uh, 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 the way that it's written there. It's written here because of the, as I've, as I've say, stated before, stories, everything in the Bible is written in bullet points because there's a, there's a bigger story, and these are the points you don't want to forget. So you don't, they, they didn't want anybody to forget that, that Saul was questioned on his perspective. Saul was questioned about his decision to try and kill David. Saul's understanding of his circumstances needed to be adjusted, and Halimelech was giving him that opportunity. And then he says, and highly respected in your household. He's like, okay, fine. You can't, you, 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 there's no one more loyal than David. There's no one that you loved more than David. That's, you know, those outside of your own children. There's no one you trusted more than David, which is why you put him in charge of your bodyguards, your elite team. And there's no one in your that's more respected in your household. Everybody in your household loves David. Everybody wants him around. They love it when he's at the meals. They love it when he's at the ceremonies. They love it when he's at the banquets and celebrations. They love it when he plays with their children, when he when he comes over to visit. They love it. They love him. There's no nobody here that doesn't love David. And I, I kind of picture Elimelech literally pointing, looking at people, and 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 people are either avoiding the look or internally, you know, kind of giving that half smile like he's yeah, he's right. We all do actually love David. And then Elimelech goes to this again. I I think it was silent. I don't think I don't think Saul responded. I think he wanted to. I think internally he was just going through absolute insanity. He's thinking to himself, I can't answer these questions out loud because I literally have have dug myself a hole I can't get out of. And the questions keep coming because God keeps saying, Let me dig you out. Take my perspective. Let's break these chains. Let's get you out of the hole. Let's let's walk this out. We can walk this out. This is not a this is not going to be a problem. Just change your perspective. Get into alignment with me. Everything will be fine. Get into alignment with love. We'll figure this out together. So Elimelech continues with the questions. This isn't necessarily in self-defense. He's just, again, trying to trying to help Saul with the, his perspective. He's trying to give Saul a chance to repent, to get a higher view on this. He's like, was this the first day, the first time I've ever I inquired of God for David? Do you think this is a, you know, you, you accused me of inquiring of the Lord for David, but how many times do you think I've done that? David didn't show up out of the blue in the middle of the night and say, hey, I know we've never met before, but I need you to talk to God for me. He's like, well, I've talked to this is literally hundreds of times. You know what this also implies? Saul doesn't inquire of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, this was, this was an opportunity for Saul to be like, oh, of... Of you know the guy I'm trying to kill inquires of the Lord regularly, and everybody knows that. And I'm the guy who doesn't inquire of the Lord. That's a revealing question. Do you think this is the first time that I inquired of the Lord for him? Of course not. Of course not. So you know he's been there hundreds of times. So let's not, come on, King, don't accuse your servant or any of his family, because he, he called him the son of Jesse. So basically, Saul is making it clear the whole family's in trouble. 
for your, your servant, me, I know nothing about this whole affair. I don't know if he lies in wait for you. You can't, there's no, I'm not part of any conspiracy. David showed up. He asked me for help. I gave it to him. He shows up at my place a lot. I've seen him a lot. We've talked a lot. I've inquired of the Lord a lot. He's sacrificed to the Lord a lot. I don't, I don't know of any conspiracy. Like, you're like, come on. Change the way you're seeing this, Saul. Don't do something you're going to regret. Not so much regret personally, but you're going to regret the results of this choice. But Saul, Saul had a decision to make. Do I take this perspective? Do I take the opportunity to repent? Do I stand my ground in my deception? But you see, people who struggle with with self-rejection hate looking like a fool. They hate it. Somebody who's who's working out of a out of a out of self-rejection and, and basically that's a that's a you know the bigger the bigger route to pride. Pride comes off of self-rejection. They they look at this and they think, if I change my mind, everybody's gonna think I'm stupid. Everybody's going to think, I'm a fool, and I will not be made a fool of. I mean, that happens at all levels of pride. It happens in sports. It happens in, in, the, you know, in, in business. It happens in, with those with, uh, who are entrepreneurs and inventors. It happens with pastors and teachers and volunteer workers and ministries and it just pride just people people don't want to be made a fool of and and this is what happens right Saul's given into pride which gives the enemy access to his to his life and in having access to his life the enemy activates these lies he feeds the lies and 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 the enemy steps in and i believe he's whispering or maybe even shouting at this point into Saul's ear he's saying Saul if you change your mind, if you don't go forward with your plan, you are going to look like a fool. You are going to embarrass yourself. You're going to embarrass the family. You're going to embarrass the country. You're going to look like a leader who can't make a decision and stick with it. Saul, you've done this your whole life. You've, you've changed your mind hundreds of times. Everybody laughs at you. Everybody makes fun of you. I, and, and his mind, you know, the, the lies doesn't just, they, they don't come isolated, right? They come with, with what they would perceive as mountains of evidence, mountains of experiences that, they, that Saul's running through his brain at this time. And he's going, you're, you're right. If I change my mind again, I've changed my mind before. Uh, uh, people do laugh at me. People do make fun of me. People do think I, I can't make a decision. I can't take that risk. And this is where I think things turn really ugly. I don't think this was the goal of Saul when this meeting started, but this thing, everything shifts right here. The king orders the guards at his side, kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They're, he says, you're all treasonous. They're all treasons. They're, they're all, kill them all. They're all sentenced to death. I am the judge and jury. Kill them all. Wow. They knew he was running and they did not tell me. Now, the priests have no obligation to tell the king what happens at the temple. They don't have to tell the king who visits the temple. They don't have to tell the king who sacrificed, doesn't sacrifice, who asked for advice, who doesn't ask for advice, who showed up, didn't show up. They, they, they have no obligation for this. So he accuses them of meeting with David, which David did often, of helping David, which they had done before, and then of not telling him what David was doing which they had never done ever before either. And the king's officials were unwilling to raise their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. This little dramatic scene is another opportunity for Saul to repent. 
He gives the order. He expects, right, arrogant leadership always expects immediate obedience. Whether it's, hey, water the plants. They expect you to water the plants. If the plants don't get watered, you're in trouble. Or, you know, all the, this extreme, right? Kill the priest. Kill them all. All 80 of them. This is insanity. How does, how does Saul get to this point? He didn't get there quickly. He's gotten there over time. And to be challenged to explain his, his position, which he knew he had gotten to in a, in a bad manner, right? He had gotten to his position of wanting to kill David in an in a inappropriate way. It was not a logical, uh, loving, hope-filled godly perspective that said we need to kill David but he had to protect himself he didn't want to be a fool he didn't want to be questioned he wanted his identity to be true and unquestionable so he orders the death of 80 priests because they conspired against him with David to kill him and the king's officials didn't but they wouldn't move. You, you, you picture the silence, the, uh, the nervous shifting of the feet. I'm sure if this was a movie, like the, the sound crew would have those echoing sounds of, of the shuffling of the sand under, you know, under someone's uh, sandal or the, the gripping, the tight gripping of a, of a sword handle by, by a uh, guard who doesn't you know who doesn't know what to do because the king gave an order and they had sworn loyalty to the to the king and they did so out of fear they weren't there because they loved Saul they were there out of fear of Saul Saul had threatened their families Saul had threatened their lives Saul intimidated them over and over again they always obeyed Saul but but in listening to Elimelech ask the questions as they heard the questions and they they heard the heart of Elimelech to plead for a new perspective as, as Elimelech's questions, in essence, illustrated the innocence of David and the and the error in making the decision to call them call uh, call for David's death, they too were repenting. They they stood there. They had a they had a connection to heaven. They had a connection to the to the wisdom and and perspective of heaven. And they were like, we can't we can't kill these priests. They're innocent. David's innocent. All they did was help you try to see a new perspective and you want us to wipe them out. You're accusing of something that isn't true. And although all of this stuff is running through their minds, they have no idea what to do. They're standing there probably in a half circle. I believe they're outside and and nobody's moving. And Saul is probably in a panic and he turns and he and he's looking for somebody who would actually do this, who would step forward and kill when they're told to kill. In other words, he's looking for an assassin. He's looking for the heart of a killer. He's looking for somebody who's so filled with arrogance and selfishness that they would do whatever it takes to get ahead. And he finds his man, Doag the Edomite. He sees him standing there off to the side, maybe under the shade, maybe having a, a pomegranate. I don't know. He's, he's standing there, and, and in this moment of silence, everybody's staring, right? All the, all the council is staring. All the commanders are staring. All the guards are probably looking down at the ground and, and periodically glancing up at each other like, right, we're not moving, right? We're no, nobody's doing this, right? We're all just not going to do this, right? We're all hoping that Saul will take this this incredibly emotionally charged moment and turn his life back to, to, to God, that he would turn his life back to heaven's perspective, that he would say, you know what? I'm not going to kill him. Fine. You all are disobedient. You know, like, fine, I'll, I'll have you all whipped and thrown in jail. And, and, and trust me, the guards knew that that was a possibility, but they were not about to be murderers. So the king doubles down again. Instead of turning his life, he turns to Doag and he says, you do it. Ah, and that's where I found 85 minutes. In the, it's in the scripture. I didn't write it down because it's right there. Verse 18. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He killed 85 priests. 
He also put the sword to Nob, the town of priests, with its men and women, its children, its infants, its cattle, its donkeys, its sheep. Now, when it says he put the sword to the town, he didn't do this alone. Doag, Doag knew some other killers. He knew some people who would be loyal to whatever they were told to do because of the reward. Doag did this because of selfishness. He did this because of the reward that he was that he was planning on asking for. Saul didn't necessarily throw out what the the killer would get. But Doag knew if I do this, I'll I'll have one on Saul. I can control something of my life. I can get some more riches. And they wiped out the town. They wiped out literally everyone and any aspect of its wealth. The cattle, the donkeys, and the sheep. There was nothing left. Now remember the priests lived off of the off of the donations of the people's uh, crops and livestock. Not every animal that was brought into the temple was sacrificed. Some of it was given so that the priests could live and their families could survive. So they wiped out everybody's gift to the Lord. Any connection that this town had to God was wiped out. This, is, this was no small decision. This, this turn in Saul's character... This is this is a dark place. This is a dark day for Saul. And the weight of it and the you know this again this didn't happen in 30 seconds. It's not like he had a uh, you know a, a semi-automatic AK47 and just started wiping people out. He had to stab them, cut them, slice them, chase them down. And I the reason why I believe he had to chase them down is because there was one who escaped. Now I don't know if he escaped from the village or escaped from the courtyard. I don't know if the courtyard was sealed off or if the guards, although they didn't raise their swords to kill the priests, they didn't let them run. I don't know. Maybe the priests all just knelt in humility and let Doag kill them all as martyrs. I don't know. Any one of those scenarios worked for me. Any one of them looked dramatic. The point is that, that Saul made a decision. He could have called back. Listen, every head that was cut off, every body that dropped to the ground was another call from God to say, repent, Saul, stop this, stop this, stop this. Every time a body fell, every time a head was chopped off, the lie was being reinforced from the enemy saying, this is who you are. You are king. You are an authority. People listen to you. People will respect you. You are not a fool. You make the right decisions. Nobody questions you. And Saul chose the enemy lies over the over the call of love. And when the, everybody's wiped out, all the priests are killed. All their families are killed. Only one got away. One of the sons of Ahimelech, his name was Abathar, he escaped and he found David in the wilderness. And he told David what Saul had done. And David said to, to the son of Ahimelech, that day when Doag the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul. And this is the humility of David. He's like, you know what? I take responsibility for the death of everyone today. This is on me. I chose to go to that priest. I chose to get the bread, the sword. I chose to bring him into something that he had no business being a part of. I'm guessing that over time, David probably had considered other options he had on that particular night when he ran. And, and I'm sure at, at this point, when he hears the devastation that has occurred, the, the death that Saul had ordered, he sat there and thought, wow, this one's on me. Man, I did all this. I put those people in harm's way. I knew Saul was, was losing it. I knew he had this potential 
I didn't want to believe that he would actually choose to go this far. So he took responsibility. And, he, and then he took responsibility for Elimelech's son. He's like, stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. I'll take you in. I'll take care of you. Now, Elimelech, his son here, Abathar, he, he joins David. He stays with David in, in, the, uh, in the wilderness. He stays with David all the way through. All the way through, over the next whatever number of years that we're talking, Elimelech's there. He actually, he becomes, uh, he joins together with Zadok later. And, and in a rare in a rare scene, we see that there are two high priests, Zadok and Abathar. Pretty fascinating. But David's committed to taking care of of the son of Elimelech because he caused the death of Elimelech and he's like, this is my responsibility. You're with me. I'll keep you safe. We'll do this together. It's fascinating how, how far people will go. And trust me, I, again, I'll reiterate. I don't think Saul did this overnight. I don't think he was oppressed by a demon. I think this is the logical, the logical end of these kind of choices over and over and over again of saying, you know, I, I, I need to figure out who I am. I'm not sure who I am. I won't be questioned. I can't be questioned. I can't be a disappointment. Um, yeah, he got there. He got to a place where he could order the death of innocent people and stand by it, even though he was constantly being called by God's goodness to repent, to change his perspective and to bring life to this circumstance. So I, I'll i leave you there. I know it's kind of a bummer of a place to, to leave, but I'm going to leave you there, and I, I just want to encourage you. Like, don't keep going down the road. Don't, don't do it. And if you're a leader, and you're concerned about the framework of your legacy, if you're concerned about how people are going to perceive you, <laughs> don't be. Choose love. Choose life. Choose to repent and take heaven's perspective on your circumstances. It's a way better fun way to live. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Epic Narrative. If you have questions for Bob or would like to reach out for booking, please email us at thebobswitzer at gmail.com or visit thebobswitzer.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Epic Narrative Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. See you next week for another chapter in our story on The Epic Narrative.